takes a bit. We're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Hal Weitzman. He just published a book in late May, May 24th on Amazon 2022. Title is, What's the Matter with Delaware? How the First State Has Favored the Rich, Powerful, and Criminal, and How It Costs Us All. He's also written another book back in 2012 or 11 titled Latin Lessons, How South America Stopped Listening to the United States and Started Prospering. Mr. Weitzman is an adjunct associate professor of behavioral science and executive director for intellectual capital at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, where he serves as editor-in-chief of Chicago Booth Review. Before joining Booth in 2012, he was an editor and foreign correspondent at the Financial Times for 12 years. As well as the Financial Times, his reporting has appeared in The Economist, The Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, The Miami Herald, New Statesman, Irish Times, Market Watch, Slate, and Politico. Hal grew up in Wales and was educated at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, Oriel College, Oxford, and Leeds University. And again, the title of the book we're going to talk about today, very timely book considering who's the president of the United States, What's the Matter with Delaware? How the First State Has Favored the Rich, Powerful, and Criminal, and How It Costs Us All. So Hal Weitzman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Awesome. So for people maybe uh, not heard your earlier book or maybe some of your other work in uh, other uh, magazines, can you kind of talk about your background and your career and what led you to write this book? What's the matter with Delaware? Okay. Well, my background is in financial journalism. Uh, as you said, I was at the Financial Times. I was their correspondent down in Peru. And before that, I was an editor in London. And then I came to be the Chicago correspondent before joining the University of Chicago. Um, so why did I come to Delaware? Well, you know, it always seemed to me that all roads led to Delaware. And I never really understood why. And I always wanted to dig into it. But it wasn't until I got away from the daily grind of journalism that I actually found some time to do that. And it just became more and more uh, fascinating the more I dug in, the more questions uh, I had. Right. So it is a question. What is the matter? And you come from Wales. In your intro, you compare... Delaware to your home uh, province or state or part of the UK. Can you kind of talk about some of the differences and similarities between the two places? Well, it, that's really just a, I mean, that's really just a device for Wales is a small country. One of, it's very confusing for outsiders, but the UK has four countries within it, which is not very well organized. Perhaps we won't have uh, Scotland uh, for much longer. Who knows? But um that's where I'm, that's where I grew up, and Wales is small. And Wales is often referred to in the UK as a kind of yardstick. So you'll hear people say, for example, the amount of like Amazon rainforest that's cut down over years the size of Wales. It's usually something bad, you know, like a swarm of locusts that was the size of Wales. Or when I was growing up, I remember reading a book in school about the Holy Land. It said the Holy Land is the size, roughly the size of Wales. And always seemed to me, William, to be a weird metric because, you know, how many people outside of Wales or even in Wales were really aware of how big it was? Um, it's just a way of saying that it was small. So when I came to the US, I came to live here in 2007, I noticed that the same thing applied to Delaware. People would say, you know, an area the size of Delaware burned down in a wildfire or an iceberg the size of Delaware broke off from the Arctic shelf or whatever. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting comparison. But, you know, Wales, I say in the book, the Wales exports um, celebrities like Catherine Zeta-Jones and, you know, uh, Anthony Hopkins. 
and Shirley Bassey from my hometown, Cardiff. But um, but Delaware exports laws. It's the laws that are made in tiny Delaware uh, govern the corporate code of the United States and really the entire world. So Delaware plays this critical role in the capitalist system. And it's one that's largely unexplored, at least outside of uh, scholarly journals. So this is a state with fewer than a million residents. It's about the size population wise of Tucson or Grand Rapids metro area. But it has 1.6 million companies registered there. They're not physically there. They're not doing business there, but they, uh, they have a, a business registration there. Most of them out-of-state companies. And Delaware is really everywhere. So if your listeners um, think about the companies that they interact with on a daily basis, many of these will be Delaware companies. You know, uh, if you think about Google and Amazon or Facebook or LinkedIn or, or Twitter, where you're broadcasting this, this uh, right now, or Visa or MasterCard or Walgreens or Walmart or CVS, most of us, and I could go on and on, most of us interact with a Delaware company at least once a day, usually multiple times a day, because two-thirds of the big public companies in America are registered in Delaware. Most companies, public companies of any size are registered in Delaware, and there's hundreds of thousands of LLCs, limited liability companies, which are private companies, and we don't know anything about them, including who owns them. And this is a really important business for Delaware. It, it provides about 40% of Delaware's state revenues, the, the general revenues that it uses um, to, you know, to make sure, for example, that it doesn't have a sales tax. It pays for that through this industry, which they call the franchise. So the franchise pays for low taxes and high spending. They say that Delaware is a uh, blue spending state with red taxes. Every politician's dream, the low tax, high spending, World well, Delaware has achieved that. And it's so paranoid about losing this business that uh, it's made it incredibly easy for anyone to set up in Delaware. So you and I, William, could go and set up a, a company in Delaware right now. We'd be done before the end of the podcast. We would have our business and we needn't go to Delaware. We can do it all online. We didn't, need not supply any identification and we can be completely anonymous. Not to mention that the office is open till midnight. So we could do all that East Coast time. We could do all that um, at 11.30 at night and still have the company registered the same day. So Very cheaply too, right? Very Yeah, and it's, and it's cheap. It's $300. So, you know, you've got to ask who's, who, who finds it advantageous to register a company in the middle of the night, half an hour, no identification, and and no and complete anonymity. Well, it does not take much of an intellectual imagination to to realize that that is a haven for all sorts of terrible activity, which we can talk about, which enjoys the legal protections of the United States. Right, and you mentioned some of these names right in the intro that people may be familiar with: Manafort, Cohen, who worked for Trump, mm -hmm. uh, who was fixing the whole situation with Stormy Daniels. And Karen McDougal had an LLC, Enron, Victor Boot, the arms traveler, arms trafficker, excuse me, and Backpage. So a lot of kind of nefarious, uh, shady types find the anonymity of Delaware to their liking, right? Yeah, well, actually, so it's funny you mentioned Michael Cohen. You're the first person uh, since I've been doing the publicity who's mentioned uh, Trump's former lawyer, uh, he actually put his name on the documentation, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know if he realized that he didn't have to, 
you do not have to put your own name. You can put the name of the agent who registers the company. So you can make it completely anonymous. Uh, in that case, Michael Cohen was not so difficult to track because he actually put his name on. Um, but yes, I mean, there are all sorts of, uh, you mentioned Backpage, you know, one of the largest uh, organizations that was involved in child sex trafficking, something like 75% of all child trafficking in the US at one point was organized by or facilitated by Backpage, that the company that got closed down. And even six months after the federal authorities closed it down, Delaware still had it listed as a, a company registered in good standing because they paid up all their fees. So Delaware didn't close it down, but the federal government did. But the point is, we know a lot, you know, if you think about the big companies that I mentioned, the Googles, the Amazons, we know a lot about what they do because they have to file quarterly reports, you know, and we, we investors can look up those reports. There's quite a lot of transparency through the SEC, but private companies don't have to report anything at all. And so in this case, they don't even have to report who owns them. So something that was shocking to me, um, and I called the Secretary of State in Delaware just to check on this, to make sure I wasn't making a mistake. I said to them, can you just tell me how many of the, the 1.6 million companies registered in Delaware are owned by non-American, people not domiciled in the United States? And they told me, we don't know, and there is no way of knowing. And to me, that, that not only is that scary, but it underlines Delaware's don't ask, don't tell approach to business formation. Right. And how did they, there is a history as to why Delaware became this one state, very getting all the protections of the U.S. government, but very different than other states in the union, right? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me about this is that Delaware didn't win this business because it had a better business model. And people in Delaware, and I, I, I think Delaware is wonderful. I've, I've made a lot of Delawarean friends through writing this book. So I mean the authorities, the 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 the, um, the state authorities who have a big vested interest in keeping this system going, they will tell you sometimes that Delaware, you know, won this business in a competition. That is not actually what happened historically. Delaware didn't win the business because it had any better business model. In fact, what happened was this was once a business that in, operated almost entirely in New Jersey, neighboring state. Uh, because in 1888, New Jersey became the first state to allow holding companies where one company could own another. So you could have a company in California that was owned by a company in New Jersey. And over the following decade after 1888, it, it relaxed a lot of the rules on corporate structures and what corporations could do. And um, so corporations flooded to register in New Jersey. And in 1911, um, the franchise tax, which all the fees that they got from this business accounted for about a third of New Jersey's state revenue. Um, now, states like Delaware copied that, but they couldn't get any market share. Fast forward to the election of 1913, which I'm sure your listeners will remember well. It was a three-way presidential election. The president at the time, sitting president, was Taft. The, uh, the Democratic challenger was Woodrow Wilson, the governor of New Jersey. And the other challenger was Teddy Roosevelt who was running for the, on a progressive party ticket, right? So he had a three-way election. And the big issue in that election was how are we going to regulate corporations? Are corporations out of control? And Teddy Roosevelt attacked uh, Woodrow Wilson for saying, you haven't reined in corporations in your home state as governor of New Jersey. How can, you, how can we expect you to do that as president of the United States? And this insult really stung Woodrow Wilson, not to mention at the same time, back in New Jersey, there was a lot of pressure on 
on people to act because of all these concerns about corporations. So both the Democratic and Republican parties pledged to do something about, about this issue. Wilson wins the election, of course, and went back to New Jersey. And in that lame duck session before he actually got sworn in as president, he and his allies pushed through a whole series of reforms that banned holding companies, that, that put a lot of restrictions on what they'd previously put in place. And the businesses fled. They left New Jersey en masse. And Delaware was there with the same rules. Remember, they'd copied from New Jersey. They were there to welcome them with open arms. So in fact, there's a, a history professor at the University of Delaware told me, you know, they have a, they had until they got they took down the statues when they were taking down a lot of statues a couple of years ago. They had a statue of um, Caesar Rodney, you know, the uh, the Delaware representative to the um, to the uh, you know Constitution Convention. Right, the Constitution. Thank you, thank you for helping me with my U.S. history. So they have they had that that statue which they later took down. But the history professor at the time I went visited Delaware, the statue was still standing. He told me, well, we should really have a statue of Woodrow Wilson because he's the reason that we're so economically successful. Delaware is a state that is very aware of its history. That's why I put so much history in the book, history of race relations, history of, uh, of, of uh, the independence struggle within Delaware, the Civil War history, which is really fascinating. Delaware was a slave state, but was in the Union. And so Delaware is very aware of its history. And it wants, and in this particular chapter, wants to make sure it doesn't do anything to jeopardize this source of revenue. And it's aimed to stay ahead of all the competitors by making itself as business friendly as possible to make sure that what happens to Delaware doesn't, what happened in New Jersey doesn't happen to Delaware. So that's where we get to a situation where you can set up a company in the middle of the night without going to Delaware with no ID and, and completely anonymous because they're concerned about losing this business. Right. And they've set up other things in that state that make it unique and people would call it business friendly but they have other things like the chancery court and other kind of rules that may be different. Can you talk about why Delaware is favored for business interests? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a basic question, right? Why are so many companies registered in Delaware? Why is it so attractive? And I think it's fair to say that the reason is more complex than people think. If you, if people have a view on that question, they typically give one of, let's say five responses. One is, it's be, if you ask a lawyer, they'll say it's because of the Chancery Court, which is a, a court that almost exclusively handles business cases. And it has a big body of case law. So you, you have case law to draw on. So that's the Chancery Court is one uh, appeal. If you ask people in the Secretary of State's office in Delaware, they'll tell you it's so easy to, to do business. You know, we stay open till midnight. Um, it's cheap. As you said, it's cheap to set up a company. We just make it as easy as possible. If you ask uh, tax fairness campaigners, they'll tell you it's because Delaware is a domestic tax haven, which we can talk about. If you ask uh, transparency campaigners, they'll tell you it's because Delaware is the home of corporate anonymity, like we talked about. Uh, if you ask somebody who went to law school um, but doesn't necessarily work in Delaware, they might tell you, well, that's what they teach in, in law school. So it's just kind of, you know, that's that's just sort of nothing succeeds like success. It just kind of builds on itself. And that's just where you go. If you register out of state, 95% of companies that register out of their home state register in Delaware. And then maybe we could add to that um, uh, a startup aspect of this, which is if you're a startup, let's say in a foreign country, let's say you start a business in Turkey and you want to move it and make a registration 
or have a subsidiary in the United States, you often won't get funding from venture capitalists and others unless you are registered in Delaware. Now, do, you, do they need to be registered in Delaware? Not clear. You'd have to ask a lawyer on that. But that's what the venture capitalists say. Unless you're registered in Delaware, we don't want to hear from you. So this all adds to the popularity of Delaware. So all of these reasons are valid. There's no one single simple answer. We have 1.6 million companies registered in Delaware. They range from Google and Amazon and Tesla, these giant companies, to Joe Schmo LLC. And so obviously their motivations are not going to be the same or they're attracted by a whole range of things. Some are undoubtedly attracted by the court system. Some are attracted by privacy and anonymity. Some are uh, you know, just attracted because they need to get the funding. Like I said, they don't really know why they're in Delaware. They just know they have to be there. Now, if you look at its marketing materials, which I encourage your readers to do, you can go on the Delaware Secretary of State's website and you read all the propaganda they have there. They will talk about the Chancery Court. They'll talk about the speed of the division of corporations, how easy it is to operate, operates at the speed of the private sector, all of that. But, you know, the, 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 the state has resisted any attempt historically to ask the owners of the companies that registering there to identify themselves. And so, so they, the reason they say that is because if they say if we did that, it would drive the, those registrations to other more likely registered uh, regulated states. So, you know, there'll be capital flight. So what it's saying there is we acknowledge that some people, if we ask them who they are, would leave and go and register in another state, which suggests that anonymity, secrecy is at least part of the appeal, if not the complete appeal. But I think if there's like one overarching theme of what makes Delaware so attractive, it's efficiency. You know, you can set up a company in 30 minutes, no documentation required. If you want to get a library card in Delaware, you need to show your ID. You want to get a comp want to set up a company there, it's much, much easier. You don't need to set up, give any identification or uh, name the, the owner of the company. Um, you can set up a holding company in Delaware and be more tax efficient. There's a Delaware loophole that enables companies to avoid paying state corporate income tax. If companies have to go to court, then there's efficiency in the court system because it's much faster than business cases are heard in other states. And even the corporate lawmaking process in Delaware has been streamlined because 27 lawyers effectively write the rules and the state legislature passes them, the state legislature passes them without any debate. So this is all very efficient. They bypass democratic debate and oversight completely. Now I'm all for efficiency. I'm all for reducing red tape, but it does beg the question, what is the cost of all this efficiency? And the cost is there's a chronic lack of transparency. There's no oversight. Identity is not verified. Legislation is not scrutinized. Other state governments are denied uh, tax revenue that should fairly be theirs. And all this has enabled a system that, that allows and abets tax dodging, money, money laundering, flow of dark money in a, into our political system and the trafficking of, of drugs and arms and people. Right. So it's this cloak of anonymity that the federal government even has trouble looking into the state as well. So they're actually at odds. And it was interesting, like the Constitution leaves it up to the state legislatures to kind of regulate. But there was never there could have been a kind of overarching federal law to govern the states and these corporations. And you mentioned Louis Brandeis and some of these other big wigs, uh, legal minds who were like, hey, there's some real problems with William Carey. 
can you talk about some of those thoughts? Like, why is this being allowed? Why is this this corporatization or the many corporate entities being allowed to be rubber stamped? Well, so so the the reason that yeah, so you're absolutely right that the states have within their power to register uh, companies. There is no way. So we still have time, William, before the end of the podcast to go and register that company in Delaware if you're interested. But I'll do it right now. Okay, go 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 get the website up because really it's very super okay, simple. I'll pull it up. I, I, I don't I haven't done it myself, but I should do it as an experiment. There's actually a lot of podcasts where they did it as a kind of fun experiment, um, planet money, etc. But um, uh, you know, it would not be possible for us to go to Washington and set up a company. We can only set up a company in our local, uh, in, in, a, in a state. So we can either go to our home state or we can go to, um, uh, we can go to, to another state. And as I said, 95% of the time, when people go out of their home state, they go to uh, Delaware. But you asked about democratic oversight. That means that the oversight of the system is handed to Delaware as well. Now, the Delaware legislature is, according to, to Pew, the least educated legislature in the United States. It has four lawyers in it. It's a part-time body. They pay them $40,000 a year to be a member. It is not well equipped to scrutinize this legislation. So there is a, I referred to this earlier, there's a, a, a unit, a committee of the Delaware Bar, called, commonly called the Corporation Council. And the Corporation Council drafts amendments to the corporate code. And the corporate code tells executives what responsibilities they have to their shareholders. So they propose these amendments every year and they send them to the legislature. They don't, there's no rationale given. They just send the proposed amendments. The legislature has no way to scrutinize this. And so they just rubber stamp it because... You know, they're told that if you don't rubber stamp it, if you cause a big fuss, then taxes are going to go up and companies are going to flee. And then once they've rubber stamped, it goes to the governor and the governor signs it into law. And I spoke to one of the ex-governors, Jack Markell, uh, and, you know, he didn't express a great kind of um, familiarity with uh, with the corporate code or, 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 to be honest, a great interest in what was in the corporate code. So this is kind of takes the form of democracy, but it really isn't democracy. Not to mention that the lawyers who are in that corporation council, the 27, 26 of them are serving lawyers. In other words, they write the rules and then they appear in court under the rules that they have just written. So to me, it looks a lot like the fox guarding the hen house. You know, it's funny because in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the University of Chicago, as you said, and, and we one of our most famous uh, economists was Nobel laureate called George Stiegler, who was a good friend of Milton Friedman. And George Siegler came up with this idea of regulatory capture. Regulatory capture essentially said that uh, com uh, companies kind of end up capturing the regulators who are supposed to oversee them. So these watchdogs end up becoming effectively lobbyists for the industries they're supposed to oversee. And what's interesting is that Delaware has kind of perfected and institutionalized this system because in that system that, that Stiegler talked about, the companies had to lobby the, legis the, the the regulators, and then the regulators lobbied on behalf of the companies. Here, in, in Delaware, the lawyers just write the rules themselves. They completely bypass any form of democracy whatsoever, and then that that becomes uh, that becomes law. So they write their own corporate code. So institution, they don't have to lobby because they just write the code anyway. I tell the story in the book about 
a lawmaker who put forward a proposal in the Delaware legislature to amend the corporate code. And there was a, a meeting in the, in the Judiciary Committee of the legislature, and he was asked, has this gone through the process? He says, what's the process? What are you talking about? And the, the uh, response was, well, has it gone through the Corporation Council of the Delaware Bar? So this lawmaker, his name is John Kowalko, he said, no. I mean, I, I just came up with it myself. And they said, well, we can't do that. There's a process. Only the Delaware Bar Corporation Council can make proposals to change the corporate code. In other words, an elected lawmaker has no right to change the law. Only an unelected group of, law, of, of lawyers who sit and deliberate in private have the right to tell us to, to change the corporate code. So that, that's it's just amazing. a fascinating like, study of what they call the Delaware way. All this back, you know, uh, behind closed doors type meetings, deal making, that just cuts democracy out. And the history of Delaware is full of this kind of backroom deal making. Right. It's really amazing. And they had something, you have a full chapter on the Delaware loophole. Can you talk about that and how Delaware was also sued by 21 states? I think it was uh, Paxton from Texas added that, but there's yeah. a, they, they have their own special way about helping people as a tax haven, right? Yeah. So those are two different issues that let, let me, let me, let me just make that clear. So the, the being sued by 21 other states, that was to do with abandoned property which as you may know is, is um, if you set up a, a you know, TD Ameritrade or whatever, a share account and you leave the money in there and you, you, know, you, you just forget about it, then eventually after a certain period of time, that money no longer belongs to you because you've abandoned it. So legally it's, it's claimed back by the state where the company is registered. So if, I don't know if TD Ameritrade actually is registered in Delaware, but if, if you're with a bank, let's say and many banks are registered in Delaware, then that money goes to Delaware. Now, some states, all states do this, but some states where that happens, like state of Washington, for example, they put it aside. And the origin of this, by the way, is that it was to prevent companies from clawing that money back. So the money belongs to you. So the state's going to hold it for you and try and find you and then give you the money back. So in places like state of Washington, they actually have a unit that in fact, puts the money aside in kind of like a uh, separate account, and they try to find the owners of this abandoned property. In Delaware, <laughs> they do not do that. They spend the money. And this is a great business because so many companies are registered in Delaware that th this is half a million, half a billion dollars a year. Right, that's huge loads, numbers. Which yeah, is, which is a lot. For a small state like Delaware, that's a lot of money. And so this is a great business, abandoned property. Uh, Delaware has been in the past very aggressive about chasing abandoned property. Property, And by the way, William, this also includes things like if you buy a friend a gift card, you know, which we've all done because it seems a little bit, you know, um, you know, handing over money is just not done. It seems a little bit vulgar. So people like to buy gift cards, right? So if you buy someone a Visa gift card, Visa's registered in Delaware, and they don't spend all the money on that card. In many cases, what, whatever's left on that card, by the way, people tend to only spend about $7 out of every 10, 70 cents out of every dollar. It gets spent, the rest doesn't get used. You know, you go to Starbucks, you buy a drink, and then there's like $5 left on the card and you just lose that card down the back of the sofa and, and that's it, the money ends up going somewhere But it's else. a huge, these are huge numbers. It's in the millions, right? That's hard to mix. It's $500 million a year. This is a great business. So that's abandoned property. But you asked about the 
the, the Delaware loophole, right? Because Delaware, you know you've arrived when you've got your own tax loophole, Delaware has one. So this is an elegant tax dodge that makes Delaware a domestic tax haven for big companies. So I'll give you an example, which is uh, Home Depot. Home Depot is based in Atlanta, but it's registered in Delaware. And in the 1990s, Home Depot set up a company called Homer after their uh, mascot in Delaware. And this was a limited liability company, one of these private companies not required to report anything. And they helped Home Depot dodge billions of dollars in taxes. And this is how they did it. They set up this Delaware subsidiary. They assigned all their trademarks to that subsidiary. So they now said overnight, this company Homer owns phrases like the Home Depot. Phrases like, where low prices are just the beginning, which are their trademark phrases. And then every Home Depot store around the U.S. and elsewhere had to pay that Delaware holding company 4% of its sales revenues to pay for the use of those trademarks. So overnight, they transferred those, those stores have been using that those trademarks for free. Suddenly, they had to pay for it. Now, of course, they could write that off as a business expense. When the money went into Delaware, it came in tax-free because Delaware doesn't tax so-called intangible income. Yeah, so it doesn't tax. So it's a complete, uh, uh, it's just a, an obvious tax dodge. It's a way of avoiding state corporate income tax. Let me let me tell you how it worked out for Home Depot by 2000. So within a decade of setting this up, Homer had revenues of $2 billion a year, $2 billion that the company was saving in taxes paid to all the states all around the US where all of your listeners um, live. Each of our states was losing some of the, some money because it was going through Delaware. In fact, it was ending up just back in the, in the, on the accounts of Home Depot, of course. $2 billion a year in revenue, but the company Homer only had four employees. It had a lawyer, paralegal, two administrative assistants. So as you say, the state of Arizona said, something fishy going on here. This does not seem right. And they sued and they won. But there are many cases where it either isn't worth suing or the states don't 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 win. And there are there are many companies that use this, including companies like Toys R Us, Walmart, Gap, Ikea, Victoria's Secret. So many, many companies have used the Delaware loophole. It is perfectly legal, but it is a, a legal way to avoid paying co state corporate income tax. And that makes Delaware a state tax haven, not a, not a federal tax haven because you can't avoid federal taxes, but it is a, a state tax haven. And I think you wrote in your book, the total amount of these state, not state taxes, but the tax haven costs yeah. to kind of lower or middle-class people is in the hundreds of billions. So a lot of these tax that, yeah, taxes can, would have gone back into the system, right? Definitely. I mean, that's that's an estimate, but the, the, this, this has huge costs. So just maybe just outline quickly three of the costs here. One cost is in revenues. So, you know, states are losing revenues. And of course, those revenues could help pay to support some of the poorest, most vulnerable people uh, in our uh, society. And because the Delaware loophole has been used to avoid state corporate income tax, um, it has helped contribute to a situation where state corporate income tax revenues have just collapsed over the past five decades. And that's left states like my one, Illinois, with massive crippling debts. And that makes it more likely that ordinary taxpayers like you and me are going to have to pay more in tax to make up for those losses. So there's a revenue aspect. Second, there's kind of a fairness aspect, right? We just lost any sense of fairness in the tax system. We know 
that the biggest companies and the wealthiest individuals pay lower effective tax rates than small companies do and middle class taxpayers do. And that's just really unfair. It's also anti-competitive because we don't want the biggest companies to, you know, to compete on the basis of who can pay the lowest tax. We want them to compete on the basis of who can make the best products and services. And third, there's a cost just to economic growth because companies spend so much time trying to avoid taxes, worrying about the bottom line, which is just really creative accounting, shifting money around, and they spend less time. That time could have been spent on creating new products and services and growing the economy and, and, and bringing money in to the top line. So it's all about the bottom line, not enough about about the top line. So, you know, it's a loss of opportunity. It's kind of like an opportunity cost, right? Like it should have been put into something else. And you write in your book, some of these big wigs are paying no business tax. Like Steve Bezos pays nothing for a year, Elon Musk. And there's a huge side industry on trying to evade taxes, which is another cost, right? That could be a side industry. So you're talking now about individuals. We all have seen that, you know, some of the wealthiest Americans on average, pay something like 3% federal income tax every year. And there are years where Elon Musk um, and Jeff Bezos paid absolutely zero. Of course, Donald Trump paid zero in in um, in uh, federal taxes. Yeah, so this is, Delaware is part of that system, you know? So one of the ways that people have avoided paying federal taxes is by using business entities like trusts and limited liability companies to create confusion about where their real assets are and uh, and to evade, uh, you know, regulators and, and tax authorities. So, you know, when we think of offshore, we think of exotic locations, right? Like Bermuda or British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands or Cyprus. But really offshore is just a way of behaving. It's not a, it's not a place. And the same kind of behavior applies in Delaware as applies uh, in those jurisdictions, which, by the way, will all tell you, like Delaware does, that they're not tax havens. They're just, you know, financially efficient, uh, you know, domiciles for business registrations. It's exactly the same argument that Delaware makes. So um, I'll give you one example of how this works. I'm fascinated by the art market, right? The art market is the largest unregulated market in the world. If you buy a painting at Christie's, they won't ask you who you are because you buy it. There's a guy on the phone in the auction room who actually buys it, makes the bid for you. And then they don't ask you where you got the money. So it's completely unregulated market, right? So let's imagine you buy a $100 million painting at Christie's. You are liable for 9% tax on that, which is not inconsiderable, right? In the city of New York. But if you put that painting in a truck and drive it down the highway to Delaware, you can put it in a high security facility in a form, a factory that used to make uh, those foam packing peanuts, stick it in there, put it in a trust and you pay zero tax because there's no sales tax in Delaware. They have a kind of a free port there, a uh, customs free trade zone. And it is this factory. It's a high security climate temperature controlled facility just for art storage and once you've got it in there you can put it in a trust you can pass it on to your heirs and uh, they don't pay any tax either so it's a it help who benefits from that system you know you and i don't benefit from that <laughs> to be honest delaware doesn't really benefit that much from that the only people who benefit are the people who are moving art around and using it as an investment so if you have a hundred million dollars that's a great way of avoiding paying tax but, you know, it doesn't help. It doesn't really add anything to society. All it does is make the rich 
richer. And if that sounds like a sort of left-wing rant, I can tell you that my colleagues here at the University of Chicago um, have a poll of the top 50 economists in the U.S., and they asked them recently, you know, is inequality a, a problem for capitalism? And overwhelmingly, they said, yes, it is, because the rate, the, the inequality is so bad right now that it just destroys faith in the capitalist system. I was looking the other day at a poll that said Republicans and Democrats both hold corporations in the lowest esteem like ever since polling began. Something like 20% of people think corporations are actually doing any good. And so the system is marked by an extreme lack of trust in, 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 you know, in, in our economic system, in companies, and Delaware has played a critical role in taking us to this point. Excellent point. I mean, it really is true. And it is interesting, this art market, that you had a whole chapter on that, on chapter four. Like those purchases, now only 14% of them are reselling. So people are putting their money into this estate and sales tax free oh, item. I mean, art is a, I could talk a lot about art, but I just say that, you know, like when you and I were kids, art was something that wealthy people bought and put in museums. And sometimes museums bought. Now, museums can't afford to buy art because it's too expensive. And so wealthy people buy it, but they're not really buying it because they love art. They're buying it because it's an investment like Bitcoin. So, you know, they put it away. The, the thing you do in a, with an investment is not give it to a museum so people can look at it and maybe someone can attack it like someone attacked the Mona Lisa the other day. They, they just want it out of the way, out of the public eye. The, the example I give in the book is Salvatore Mundi, which is fascinating painting in itself right may or may not be a lost leonardo and it was it was bought eventually we found it was bought by the crown prince of saudi arabia but it it, it was bought what like four or five years ago now it's never reappeared there was a promise that it would be uh, in a louvre in abu dhabi it's never shown up so that's just to me is a one example of how art which used to be something that you take the kids to the museum to see no longer is that, it's just an investment. Most people who buy art, buy it because they, exclusively because they think it's gonna go up in value, not because it's something beautiful, something they wanna enjoy and own. It's just something that they, it's an asset that could be, frankly, could be gold or Bitcoin or NFTs or whatever. And that's just another example of these, this financial kind of maneuvers that uh, denude the public benefit because it's not being seen or it's not being shared. It's it's just sitting in, in some place in Delaware. Somebody drives 130 miles south from New York City and puts it in there. So it's a shame. Um, we're at about 40 minutes here, Hal. And there's a lot more in this book. We haven't gotten to Biden, DuPont, MBNA. There's a lot more in this book. Very detailed. I really loved reading it. Um, what would you like to add or anything I missed before we kind of move towards the end of this discussion? Oh sure. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the sort of points I wanted to make about Delaware, why Delaware is that sort of Delaware's ordinariness is its great strength. I think you know. Um, so I tell a story in the book about um, Ramon Fonseca, who was the one half of Mossack Fonseca, right, the law firm based in Panama, whose papers were uh, published as the Panama Papers. This was a company law firm that was helping wealthy people hide their money all around the world. So an investigative journalist who I interviewed for the book went down to, to Panama in the 1980s during the days of um, Manuel Noriega. And he was poking around trying to find out about offshoring. And he interviewed Ramon Fonseca. 
this guy and you know who played such an important part in helping people hide money and he said to him you know you help people hide money all over the world where do you keep your money and ramon fonseca said in delaware they'll never find it there you know so there's all this stuff going on in delaware but delaware kind of flies under the radar it's very it's kind of um although i like delaware a lot it is not a exotic or glamorous place like the other um treasure islands that i mentioned like british virgin islands and bermuda uh, and Panama and Cyprus. It's, you know, it's very ordinary. You may remember the scene from Wayne's World where Wayne and Garth like pictured in front of a green screen, there's Delaware behind and they sort of, they have no idea what, they have no association with Delaware. You know, we always think of these tax havens as being over there, somewhere away, somewhere exotic, but actually it's very ordinary. Delaware is everywhere, like I said earlier, but Delaware is also anywhere. It's kind of, you know, it's really not uh, a remarkable place at all. I think that's one of its great strengths you know it sort of reminds me when all these scandals happen it sort of reminds me of when um you know when you're watching the news and there's some horrible misdeed happens in someone's house and the media rushes there and they speak to the neighbors and neighbors say oh you know he was so quiet i can't believe that was happening here well that's delaware you know it's, it's just like this is so quiet it's, it's unbelievable to to think that that there is so much nefarious activity that has passed through delaware that has used delaware corporations but that's uh, the situation uh, that we're in. And Delaware, even now, has resisted any attempt to force its registering agents to even just ask the question, who's the owner of the company? And this is kind of a great fear that this business will be driven elsewhere. Right. And it, that business is a lot of times in secrecy isn't great. So you have money launderers, uh, drug dealers, and uh, guy from Equatorial Africa, dictators and things who were looting their country, money that should be going back to their population in Africa or something, being laundered through Delaware. And it's, uh, it, like I said earlier, it de denudes the, the, the lives of middle and lower class people, I think. I mean, it's just really a shame. But uh, really interesting book. And you do go into the colonial origins. You talk about a lynching that happened there. So you talk a lot about uh, the history of Delaware, too, in the book. Yeah, because that history that history looms large. Now, I'm trying to understand where did this Delaware way, this kind of behind closed doors way of deal making, where did it come from? And partly, I think it's psychological history of Delaware, this tiny state, having really very deep divisions over independence, over the Civil War, over race. And um, the, the response to that has been to shut down any any sense that there's any kind of division whatsoever not to mention that you know money talks and so the fact that there's so much revenue derived from this business has been you know has has, has kind of put the spooks on anyone in delaware who might speak up against it right and this you can get this as a kindle an audiobook and a hardcover correct Yes, I, I do not read the audiobook. There's, a, there's an actor who, who is reading it, so I cannot verify how good it is, but people tell me they're enjoying it. Uh, and yes, then you can, of course, buy the Kindle, which is on Amazon, a Delaware company. If you want to avoid a Delaware company, you can get it direct from the publisher, Princeton University Press, uh, on their, they have a webpage for the book. I'll put that on the show notes, the Princeton University Press. And then Hal Weitzman, is there uh, social media or a website I can also add to the show notes where people can reach out and yeah. contact you if they have any questions. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, which is just at Hal Weitzman, and I use LinkedIn a lot to connect with my audience, so you can uh, follow me on LinkedIn. 
So LinkedIn and Twitter, I'll put it in there. Thanks mm -hmm. so much for your time. Fascinating conversation. Okay. Really great book. I enjoyed reading it. Again, the title is What's the Matter with Delaware? How the First State has Favored the Rich, Powerful, and Criminal, and How It Costs Us All. And the guest, again, and author is Hal Weitzman. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the conversation. All right. Take care. All right. Stay there. Stay there.